Welcome to the Practical Research Parenting Podcast. Here's your host, Nicole Weeks. Her friends call her Nikki. Hello, welcome to the second episode of Practical Research Parenting. Uh, so this week we'll be talking about sleep associations. Sorry it's taken me so long to get round to it, I had a cold, so hopefully my voice is up to it today. So we'll be looking at sleep associations and particularly how they can help and hinder settling to sleep. Um, and what I'm going to be looking at particularly is the theory of classical conditioning. Um, so you can see the outline and all the other resources as usual on www.practicalresearchparenting.com forward slash associations. So it's forward slash associations for this episode. Okay, so for an outline of what we're going to look at today, we're going to look at the theory behind sleep associations. So I'm looking at classical conditioning here. I'm going to argue against some common terms which you may have heard, dysfunctional associations, inappropriate associations, negative or bad associations. I'm going to argue that these terms don't make a lot of sense and why a concerted effort to break these associations may not actually be helpful and that the focus should be rather on building new associations. And so in that vein, I look at how classical conditioning can help us in the formation of new associations. Okay, so let's get straight in. So classical conditioning. Um, so you may well have heard of Pavlov's dog, and this is what really, I guess, started the research into classical conditioning. So Pavlov's dog, before he gave it food, he'd always ring a bell. So he'd ring a bell, then he'd go and get the dog's food. And he started to notice that the dog would start salivating when he just heard the bell, when he hadn't smelt or seen the food yet. So this made him think um, that maybe this bell had become conditioned. So this started off a whole lot of research in this vein. Um, and basically, I'll, I'll go through the technical terms for what everything is because I may use them throughout, but I'll try not to because they do get confusing. So basically, the food is the unconditioned stimulus. So that means the dog didn't need to learn anything. Nothing needed to be conditioned for the dog to salivate to the food. Um, the food biologically caused the dog to salivate. So the food was the unconditioned stimulus, no learning required, and the salivation was the unconditioned response. Um, again, no learning required to produce that response from the food. Um, but the, then the bell became the conditioned stimulus. Um, so the bell was producing an unconditioned response, uh, sorry, a conditioned response, which was very similar to the unconditioned response. Um, you could almost call them the same thing. So I will tend to just refer to the response as salivation. Um, so the bell became the conditioned stimulus that prompted the salivation. So unfortunately, um, that makes it sound quite simple. You have the bell, precede the food, and then you get those two things associated. Um, but it's not so easy to apply that to sleep, actually. Um, so if we look at sleep, like actually the, the falling asleep um, and being asleep as the unconditioned response, uh, to find an unconditioned stimulus, this is my conjecture, but my conjecture is that it would be that comfortable, sleepy feeling that you feel just before you fall asleep. Um, so that's the unconditioned stimulus. When you're feeling comfortable and sleepy, then you fall asleep. Um, so, and I think that involves quite a few factors. So comfort 
would include physical comfort and security. Um, so physical, whether if you're too hot or too cold, it's hard to sleep, um, that sort of thing. But also security, if you're as an adult, certainly if, if you're worried about someone, you thought you heard someone break into the house downstairs, you're not going to be falling asleep right then. Um, and it's similar for, for babies. Most probably they don't have the same cognitive capacity, but if they're unsure that they'll be safe, if there is any danger, um, then they probably won't be able to fall asleep. And the second aspect is feeling sleepy. Um, and we covered the body clock aspect of this last week. Um, and there's also the fatigue aspect. So how long since their last sleep, um, whether they had much stimulation between now and then, um, how long they slept for, how well they slept, all that sort of thing. So all that sort of thing goes into sleepy and the physical and the security aspects go into comfort. So that's quite a complex, unconditioned stimulus um, compared to just food, um, for example. And so if we were to try to look for a conditioned stimulus, this would be anything that directly precedes the comfortable sleepy sensation and sleep more often than it doesn't. Um, so it's often paired with this comfortable sleepy sensation. Okay, so you've probably heard a lot about associations. A lot of people do talk about them. You may well have heard the terms negative associations, bad sleep habits, dysfunctional associations, inappropriate sleep associations. I strongly disagree with these terms um, and I'm going to let you know why, but firstly, talking about what they are. So usually they're used to refer to any sort of active settling things you do, so feeding your baby to sleep, rocking your baby to sleep, holding your baby until they're asleep, um, they'll often call these negative associations based on the premise that if your baby always needs you to get to sleep, then that's, that's hard work for you. Um, and it also, I guess they worry about the independence of the baby, but under 12 months old, I, I really wouldn't worry about that so much. Um, but yeah, they're, they're worried that if you're feeding, rocking your baby to sleep, they're not learning to fall asleep themselves and they're going to rely on you all the time for falling asleep. Um, so I disagree with this on a number of levels. And so there are three main reasons. The first one's a personal reason. Um, I just, uh, I can't I can't call something that feels so wonderful as, as feeding your baby and hugging your baby as anything negative, like negative, bad, dysfunctional. Um, I think these are very important bonding things and, and relationship building things. And I don't think that it's fair to put a negative label on them, even if they do become a habit. I, I even, then I wouldn't call it a bad habit. So on a personal level, I disagree, but I also disagree on a couple of theoretical levels. So firstly, these sort of arguments are, seem to be assuming that the feeding or rocking is a condition stimulus. So it's like the bell, they're assuming. Um, but I'm not sure about that. I think it may be better considered an unconditioned stimulus, so more like the food. Um, and this was the argument put forward by Whittingham and Douglas in 2014 as well. The argument is that feeding your baby, actually um, the breast milk contains nucleotides that facilitate sleep, especially during the night. I found this really interesting when I did read the paper. It was a paper by Sanchez et al. in 2009. Um, 
And interestingly, there are quite a few different nucleotides that um, operate and some of them seem to um, set the body clock and others seem to actually work more like drugs that we'd expect to work, Um, so making you sleepy, directly making you sleepy, and they change throughout the day. So at night they're going to make you sleepy more than during the day. Uh, So I found that really interesting. And as an an aside, it means that if you're ever expressing milk, uh, better to express it at roughly the same time of day as you'll be feeding, as someone will be feeding your baby. Uh, So I found that really interesting. Um, But it's a reason why feeding your baby to sleep might actually be more of an unconditioned stimulus. It's more of a biological thing that it helps your baby to sleep, not so much a conditioned thing. I suspect the more you do it, uh, the classical conditioning would probably play a hand in, but the biological connection would probably be much stronger and that that constant pairing would just strengthen the relationship. It, it's not what builds and breaks it. The other thing is the, the comfort aspect of both holding and feeding your baby. Um, so need for contact is a very biological need. Um, they did some quite cruel experiments uh, to find this out a long time ago, um, back when they could get away with it. So in 1958, they raised, um, this was um, this was Harlow in 1958. He raised monkeys, baby monkeys, in complete isolation. So they didn't really have contact with, they definitely didn't have contact with their mother and minimal, if any, contact with adults, with, with humans or any other creature really. So what they did was they had these poor monkeys in a cage with a wire sort of inanimate, two inanimate monkeys. So one was a wire monkey and the other one was a, a wire monkey with cloth draped over it. Um, and they they changed whether the milk was on the wire monkey or the cloth monkey. And they found that the baby monkeys would cling to this cloth monkey all the time and especially if they were ever scared of anything. Um, and they'd only ever go to the wire monkey if they needed food and if that was where the food was. Um, so this this basically sort of suggested that this need for contact is is really a, a bio, biological need. So that being a biological need suggests again that hugging, feeding, that sort of thing is more like the unconditioned stimulus. It's more it feeds directly into the sleepy, comfortable, secure. Um, feelings that I'm calling the unconditioned stimulus. So more like the food than like the bell. Um, So the second theoretical reason that I disagree with this argument that um, feeding or rocking your baby to sleep is a bad association or an association you don't want to form is that Pavlov's dog still salivated to the food um, with or without the bell. So to argue that babies can't sleep if they don't have their conditioned stimulus, in this case feeding or rocking to sleep, is like arguing that the dog would no longer salivate to the food. Well, of course the dog would still salivate to the food. Um, So I don't think that is a fair argument. But if the feeding and rocking to sleep is a big part of the unconditioned stimulus, then yes, trying to take this unconditioned stimulus away 
and still expecting the same response, you will have some troubles. So Whittingham and Douglas in 2014 actually argued that it's dangerous to try to break this association between feeding and rocking and sleep because you risk breaking the association between that sleepy sensation and sleep. And apparently this is a big problem in adult insomnia is that that, that when they feel sleepy, they no longer associate that with falling asleep. Okay, so where does this leave this leave us? So it means that feeding or rocking your baby to sleep is not necessarily a problem. If it's working for you and working for your baby, it's not a problem. Um, but I'm not unrealistic in realizing that it does become a problem for some people sometimes. For example, I've been perfectly happy to feed Beth to sleep for most of the six months, um, apart from, you know, trying to put her in the her cot and that sort of thing like I talked about last week. Um, but that's always been my fallback is falling, feeding her to sleep. Um, but soon I've got my sister's wedding coming up and other things that mean that I'm not going to necessarily be there when I'm getting her down um, to sleep or when someone's getting her down to sleep. So I really do need to start to build other associations and make sure that she's comfortable, comfortable falling asleep without feeding. Um, so if you do, if this feeding to sleep or rocking to sleep does become a, become a problem for you, um, there are things you can do. Of course, it is a bit more complex with a baby again, because even though they don't need to, the food to fall asleep, they are still likely to request or demand the usual settling conditions. Um, so in order to get this to work, you need to set up alternate comfort and sleepy conditions, and we'll talk about that in a little while. Um, and another thing you can do is focus on setting up new associations. And I argue that we're, we're focusing on setting up new associations and getting them comfortable and sleepy in new environments rather than focusing on breaking old habits. Okay, so we can use the classical conditioning research to help us set up new associations. So basically, th two things become associated if one of those things precedes something else more often than it doesn't. So to set this up um, and actually have it help... Um, it can, it, we need very specific conditions. So for example, you might be trying to get some sleep cues working for your baby. So these are words or music or humming, uh, that sort of thing that your baby can begin to recognize and realize when I hear this, it's time to get, feel sleepy and fall asleep. Ideally, that'd be nice. Um, so that's what we're working towards. So to form and maintain an association like this, those cues would need to be frequently followed by a sleepy, comfortable feeling and rarely not followed by a sleepy, comfortable feeling. And they should be used immediately before, so the cues should be used immediately before the onset of that sleepy, comfortable feeling. Now, this is harder said than done um, because, A, you've got to predict it, um, but, B, that sleepy, comfortable feeling is really a, a gradual onset thing. It's not like food where you suddenly present it. Uh, it, it sort of, yeah, as, as you know, when you're falling asleep, it comes on gradually. So my guess is that probably the best time to use your cues would be they'll probably already be feeling comfortable and sleepy, but just before their eyes begin to droop and their body begins to relax. But that is that is a guess. I'm I'm not absolutely sure how 
to apply it with such a gradual process. Um, so applying this, as I said, in practice is difficult with babies. Um, so you need to be able to predict when your baby's going to feel this comfortable sleepy sensation. You need to learn when they're going to start, their eyes is going to start drooping and their body's going to relax. Uh, and also the other thing that makes it tricky is you want the reason we build up these association is that you want these associations to help get them to sleep. But if you use them too often, trying to get them to sleep when it doesn't work, um, then the association will be lost. So I have tried um, using this theory to help both of my kids with sleeping and I've made a lot of mistakes. So I'll talk you through my mistakes and then hopefully together we can learn from them. Um, so the first one was I with Xander I used his seahorse, so that's one of those soft glowing toys that you get. I'll have a link in the show notes, the one we used, but it's, it's not that important. Um, so the difficulties I had with the seahorse was having it present and accessible. If I was walking around for Xander to sleep, it was I didn't really want to lug a, a soft seahorse around. It would look a bit odd. Um, and also when I was feeding it, it would fall off the couch and that sort of thing, or I'd have to lean over because I'd swap sides. It, it was just really hard having it accessible. Um, the other problem was it had quite an, a sudden onset. So initially that was fine. But then once he got to the age where he was aware and sort of looking around for sounds, I'd turn it on just as he started to look like he was falling asleep and he'd open his eyes and try to strain to sit up and see what was happening. Um, so that was another problem with that. And the, But I think despite those problems, I did manage to get some conditioning happening because I left Xander with mum at one stage and she used the seahorse and apparently said that he just suddenly relaxed as soon as she put on the seahorse. So maybe that conditioning did work, but once I thought it had worked, I started using it when I wanted him to go to sleep and then, well, it didn't work. So that association was very quickly lost. With Beth, I took a slightly different approach. I used my phone and had a song on loop. I thought that was a great idea because I could play that loop for as long as it took me to get her down. But she never actually seemed to build up an association. And my theory is that it's because I was playing it for too long. I'd I'd put it on when I was trying to get her to sleep and getting her to sleep might take her an hour. So maybe it was no longer predictive of sleep. It was also predictive of crying and bopping and walking and fussing and all those things that happened well before she became comfortable, relaxed and fell asleep. Um, and the second problem was once I did start, once she did start to sort of seem to settle in her cot a little bit, I had trouble leaving my phone till she was asleep. I didn't always want to leave my phone in her room. Um, and of course, unlike the seahorse, um, Beth could never re- never get my phone to play. The seahorse um, at that age, um, in the first year, Xander certainly couldn't use it either, um, but now he certainly does. At two and a half, he turns on his seahorse at night. I, I'll often hear it without hearing him because he'll wake up, turn on his seahorse, grab a drink of water and go back to sleep. And he's been doing that, turning on his seahorse deliberately at night, probably since about one and a half or so. Um, so that's something that obviously the phone could, couldn't replace. Um, so 
based on these mistakes I've made and the theory that we've talked through, I'd suggest um, some sort of music that can be played with gradually increasing volume. So something like you might have on your phone, but getting away from that problem of leaving your phone. Or of course, you could use humming because that's certainly something that you can start doing gradually um, or keywords. The only difficulty with that is that once you do start putting them in their cot, um, you'd want them to be feeling sleepy fairly soon after you say your keywords and leave the room um, as opposed to what Beth does at the moment, which is I put her in a cot and she'll play for quite a long time before falling asleep. So those keywords would probably, if I did that too often, become associated with the playing rather than the sleeping. Um, but, yeah, that that is something you could try is the humming and I, I guess ideally you could then come to the doorway and hum that same tune and hopefully they'll get the message they should be sleeping. That's the theory anyway. Um, and also, as I said before, um, play or sing just as their eyes start to droop and their body just before their body starts re- to relax. And use it when you're settling everywhere. So whether you're settling them in the pram, the carrier, cot, feeding, whatever you usually do, um, but make sure that you use it on a variety of different things because, for example, if you always um, rock your baby to sleep, then that rocking, that physical comfort is probably going to be more strongly associated with that sleepy, comfortable sensation and using the cues with only that method, well, it won't be adding adding any information for them um, and therefore that association may not build um, because there's that biological connection between the hugging and the comfort and the the cues are, are no additional, add no additional information. Whereas if you use them with a lot of different methods, so if you use them when you're carrying them, hugging, feeding in their cot, all that sort of thing, um, then the cues are adding some extra information. They are the sound you hear just before you get sleepy and comfortable anywhere. Okay, so of course it doesn't matter how well you've um, conditioned your your conditioned stimulus, um, so the bell, if you're just going to remove the unconditioned stimulus um, immediately and too early. I think if you were to move, remove the comfortable and the sleepy sensation, um, no matter how good your conditioned stimulus is, I'm not. I don't think you're going to get your baby to sleep. Um, so, as well as working on producing a conditioned stimulus, we at the same time want to work on um, providing alternative unconditioned stimuli. So, basically, we need to replace this comfortable and sleepy sensations they get from the hugging and the feeding with other things and start to get them familiar with those. So the first one is they need to be comfortable and feeling secure in their cot. And a big factor in this is probably familiarity. Um, There's a lot of studies showing that, and I'm sorry I haven't researched this, this is just from my memory, um, from my psychology training. Once we get more familiar with things, we begin to like them more. So just having that familiarity with their cot is a, is a good thing to start. And what I did for this, uh, based on the Dream Baby Guide 
for both of my children. Um, with Xander, I did it from six months and with Beth, I've done it basically, well, for a long time, probably since she was a few months old, um, is that after each sleep, because usually they'd end up sleeping at least in their cot, I'd, when they woke up and usually cried for my attention, I'd go in and sing good morning to them and say hello and open the blinds and that sort of thing and then give them some toys in their cot. And I'd wait until they were comfortable enough playing with their toys and then and then I'd leave the room. So the idea of that was getting them familiar with their cot, getting them comfortable with the idea of being alone in their cot. Um, so as initially you wouldn't want to leave for long and you wouldn't want to leave if they're screaming because you want this to be a positive association. So this isn't something we force on them. It's something that you take as gradually as you need to for them. Um, but I found with both of my kids, they've been quite happy to play in their cot afterwards. And sometimes I'll go in and play with them and usually I'll go out and, and do some other things. Um, so I think that's a really good thing to implement while you're doing this, um, setting up this condition stimulus as well. The other thing is warmth. Obviously, hugs have a lot of warmth, a lot of body heat, um, and something I found really useful in winter was just heating up the the surface of Beth's cot. Um, so I, I used a hot water bottle and then I'd take that out and make sure it was a good temperature for her before I put her in, and I found that worked really well. The firmness of a hug also provides a lot of comfort. Um, so there are a number of ways you can try to replicate this in their cot. Uh, one of them is to wrap them, um, but of course that's no longer considered safe after they can roll over. Um, so after that time, there are still some things you can do. Uh, something I've used, which is again from the Dream Baby Guide book, um, is that I put the cot sheets lengthways um, such that there's more to tuck in the sides. And I roll up some towels and shove them down the sides to basically keep the sheet very tight over the body of of the kids. Um, so that provides comfort, but if they want to roll over, they've tended to manage to get out of it. Um, another thing that I've I've never I've never come to buying it, um, but that I know a lot a lot of sleep people recommend is the safety sleep. Um, which apparently holds your baby in their bed and provides that firmness um, and is that bit more secure and that bit more safe. Um, so I'll provide a link, um, but as I said, I, I haven't used it, so I'm, I'm not sure how good it is. I just know that a lot of people do recommend it. That's playing to the comfort side of things, but for the sleepiness side of things, you also want to be watching their cues and making sure they've got adequate stimulation when they're awake, such that they'll be able to fall asleep when it's time to sleep, um, and watching for cues and making sure they're sleepy when you are putting them down. So as you can tell, sleep cues, it, it's quite difficult to get them to work for getting a baby to sleep, but I'm, I'm still hopeful that they can work. There's certainly um, quite a few advocates of them, so I'm sure in some cases you can get them to work, and I had that little brief success with Xander. Um, but where sleep associations, I guess, really help with sleep is actually once that sleep routine is more established. Once you've got a routine where, for example, you do bath, change, story, sleep, or change story sleep, and that's the usual routine. Once you do that often enough 
and once that is fairly predictably followed by falling asleep, then that routine in a way maintains itself because that change is associated with the the reading the story and the story is associated with the sleep. Um, so it it does it works really well for maintenance. It's a lot more work to use it as an instigator for sleep, I guess, but it is possible. Okay, so in summary, let's look at the action points we can get out of this. So active sleep associations aren't inherently a problem, but if they do become a problem for you um, or for your baby, then the way I'd go about trying to change them, and I will probably try this with Beth once she gets over her cold and her teething, um, is that you'd continue your usual setting, settling routine, but you'd start to introduce a condition stimulus. So this might be humming or singing or a few cue words, that sort of thing. So you'd use this condition stimulus just as their eyes begin to droop um, and just before their body relaxes at each sleep time, um, no matter where you are or what you're doing to get them to sleep. You'd at the same time, work on familiarizing your baby with the unconditioned stimulus substitutes. So this is things like cot playtime once they wake up, um, wrapping them, that sort of thing, if you're going to try that sort of thing. And then once you feel you're ready to start trying to use this and you feel that hopefully an association has started to build up, then every now and again, but not all the time, use your cues as you pat your baby in the cot. Um, if it isn't working, so if it if it doesn't usually work, then I'd only do it. I wouldn't do it too often. Maybe once a day, assuming your your baby's sleeping um, two to three times a day if they're that young. Um, if they're sleeping less, you might do it every two days. If if it isn't predictably working, and then once it starts to work, which hopefully it does, and um, please leave me feedback to tell me if it does. Um, once it starts to work, then you can start to do it more often until hopefully you you can start doing it every time because more often than not, they're falling asleep after you say your cues. So you do this so that you can make sure that you're retaining this association between your cues and sleep at other sleep times. And if, like I did with Xander, you do lose this conditioning, you have it and then you lose it, um, that's not the end of the world because with, with classical conditioning, um, there is a phenomenon where these cues, these associations um, spontaneously reform. Um, but also if you attempt to reform them, it will be much faster to reform them the second time than it was in building them the first time. Um, so this, this could really be helpful in the long run. If you do manage to build them up, you can probably rebuild them again in the future. Okay. So that's the end of the content for today. Um, so please do let me know if you have used this or when you have used this or if you try it. Um, please do comment on this post. So that's www.practicalresearchparenting.com forward slash associations. I would love to hear your 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 learning as well so we can learn from any of the mistakes you've made too. And I certainly won't be judging because as you've heard, I haven't really been successful with using this yet. Um, so yeah, please do comment and tell us what went right and what went wrong and what you think the reasons might be. And happy to get into a discussion about 
how classic and classical conditioning applies to sleep as well, because as I said, this is using a theory and applying it to the sleep. Um, but of course, we could probably argue around whether that application is, is a is a good way to apply it. So happy to get into those sort of discussions as well. So if you think this information is valuable, please do tell your friends and consider leaving me a review, review on iTunes or Stitcher. That would really help get the word out there um, and it would be great to have more people accessing what I think is valuable information. So as always, you can find the notes um, and the links on the show notes at www.practicalresearchparenting.com forward slash associations. I've now made the transcript a sign-up only thing, um, so you can access it. You just have to sign up to my newsletter. The reason, the main reason I've done that is that the transcripts take a lot of time and effort on my part and I want to know that people are using them um, because if they're not, then I won't worry about doing it. So thank you very, very much for listening and next time we'll be looking at a scientific review of five sleep training methods. So please stay tuned. That'll, I'm aiming for, that'll be in two to three weeks, preferably two, possibly three. So see you then. Thank you. Bye.